Amen. All right. Okay. So uh, just a little bit of context. If you're just jumping into Job for the first time, uh, just a little bit of context from chapters three um, all the way to chapter 31, uh, there will be what's known as three cycles of Job talking and then Job's friends responding. Okay. If you don't know who Job is, Job is uh, an innocent, blameless man who suffers unjustly or suffers disproportionately to uh, his sin, okay? And uh, his friends come and they try to comfort him. Uh, Thankfully, we will not be preaching chapter by chapter through chapters 3 to 31. Uh, We'll only be preaching from selected chapters uh, that I think will be particularly relevant for us. And so the last time we were in the book of Job, which is about three weeks ago, uh, Leighton, our pastoral intern, uh, walked us through Job's complaint and lament which described his desire to never be born. His life was so bad that he wished that he could turn back time to when life was without form and order. He wanted creation, in other words, to be completely undone. And so Job's cries were were raw. They were bold and unnerving. If you were in the shoes of Job's friends, how would you respond? What would you say? And so chapters four and five, the chapters we're looking at tonight, start the response of Job's friends. And because it's so long, we're not going to read it all at once. We're just going to go through it as the sermon progresses. And Job's friend Eliphaz goes first. And to introduce Eliphaz, I thought I'd uh, start by throwing out some, uh, perhaps some well-beloved, familiar statements that you might have heard in your life. Everything happens for a reason. God has a better plan. Everything that happens in your life passes through the filter of God's love. Don't waste your suffering. Your pain has purpose. All things work together for your good. Just trust God. God will never give you more than you can handle. God will always give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard of these statements before? If you've been coming to Lighthouse for a little bit, I'm sure you have. Have you ever told anyone of these statements before? How did you feel and respond when someone said these things to you? How did others feel and respond when you said these things to them? Discouraged? Even guiltier? Misunderstood? Annoyed? Angry? Have you ever wondered why? You see, the problem is in that these statements don't have an element of truth to them. These statements are all technically true. Most of these statements are biblical or consistent with biblical truth. And the problem isn't that these statements aren't well-intentioned. When we say these things to others, and when people say these things to us, it's not intentionally malicious or harmful. We, We genuinely try to be helpful. The problem, I think, is that these statements are said with such explanatory certainty and assurance. As if these statements can solve or fix the problem and pain of others. You know, I was reading the story of a woman who was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And uh, in her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, she records the conversation that took place between her husband and her neighbor. Once, while she was still in the hospital, her neighbor came to the door to drop off a casserole and told her husband, who answered the door, that everything happens for 
a reason. Perhaps expecting a thank you, her husband said to the neighbor, I'd love to hear it. Startled, the neighbor asked, pardon? You know, the reason my wife is dying, he said. In a sense, if we truly believe that God is in control of the universe, then nothing that ever happens in our lives, whether good or bad, is random. But at the same time, do we actually know why these things happen in our lives? Like, what actually is the reason for our pain? How can we know for sure what is going on in the mind of God? Sometimes we correct people who say that God will never give you more than you can handle. And so instead, we say that God will often give people more than they can handle. But how is that supposed to be any more comforting? That just makes God sound cruel. And if everything that comes into our life passes through the filter of God's love, then what about sexual assault? What about danger? What about loneliness? What about same-sex attraction? What about abuse? Does abuse pass through the filter of God's love? Does depression pass through the filter of God's love? Does divorce pass through the filter of God's love? If everything that comes into our lives must pass through the filter of God's love, then God clearly has some quality control issues because that's a pretty lousy filter, if you ask me. As Christians, we rightly believe in a God who is completely sovereign, who is completely in charge of the universe, who, is, who completely rules over everything. But we tend to overcompensate by wrongly concluding that God is the direct and sole cause for everything that happens in our lives. It's, tant- it's tantamount to saying that God is the author of sin and evil, which he's not. While God is the only sovereign actor in the world, he is not the only actor. There are evil people and evil creatures who actively act and rebel against the sovereign creator. And so, what do we actually mean when we say these things to others? What do others mean when they say these things to us? The problem with these statements isn't just that they're said with such certainty and authority. The problem isn't that they're necessarily untrue. And the problem isn't that they're ill-intended. Of course not. Ultimately, I think the problem with these statements is that they miss the person entirely. The desire to explain and solve the problems in your friends' lives is probably well-intentioned, but you can miss the person facing the problem. In our sincerity, we can still be wrong. And this is what we see in our passage tonight. Tonight we encounter a genuine and sincere attempt to care for a suffering friend. But despite how theologically or technically accurate his statements are, and despite how well-intentioned Eliphaz is, he is still wrong. In fact, all Job's friends get it wrong this entire book. God even says so. And I think this is the reason why the author of Job included 20-something chapters of Job's friends just speaking nonsense. We need to see just how bad it is. And this is the reason why we're reading Job chapters 4 to 5. 
I know it's long if you've taken a look at it. It's like 40-something verses if you tally it up. But we need to read both chapters in its entirety so that we can understand just how terrible and unhelpful Eliphaz's words are. But also so that we never repeat the same mistakes of Eliphaz. And so to be a helpful friend to those who suffer, what must we not say when they hurt? And so if you're following along in our notes, uh, in our notes there's a, a little section called Key Idea. The key idea is that s- there are six things we must never say when people hurt. Six things we must never say when people hurt. And the first thing we must never say is, don't you trust God? Don't you trust God? Eliphaz, uh, one of Job's friends, is the first to respond to Job, like I've mentioned. And having had enough of Job's complaining in the previous chapter, in Job Job chapter 3, this is what he says. Take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Eliphaz says this, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? All Bible commentators, people who have uh, commented on uh, this passage, the all, all the commentators that I've read remark that Eliphaz's approach is initially genuine, caring, and even sensitive. But I, I beg to differ. I mean, how can he be? My, tra- my, my translation of the Hebrew literally says, if speech tests you, will you give up? But who is able to hold back a word? Eliphaz won't hold back his words And he doesn't care if Job isn't ready to listen. But even if we were to assume the best of Eliphaz, that he really did care, that he really was sensitive, that he really was well-intentioned, Eliphaz's sincerity shows us that good intentions can only go so far. We can be so sincere and yet also be sincerely off the mark. I think some of us justify, like Eliphaz, that as long as I am sincere well-intentioned and truthful, then I can say whatever I want to this person. The ends justify the means, and I think we know people like that. But the lesson of the opening words of Eliphaz is that good intentions usually don't protect us from harming others with our words. Sincerity alone doesn't offer immunity from adding salt to people's wounds. And so if Job's tragedies don't kill him, then for good measure, Job's friends' good intentions will. So what does Eliphaz actually say in his faux sincerity? Take a look at verses 3 to 5. Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. At best... Eliphaz is giving Job a backhanded compliment, and at worst, he's saying that Job, who has helped so many in the past, now can't even help himself. The doctor can't even stomach his own medicine. But whether we read Eliphaz's words charitably or not, it's still, at the end of the day, unhelpful. That's just not how you talk to people who grieve and suffer. But the deeper problem behind Eliphaz's faux sincerity is that he is accusing Job of really unbelief. Take a look at verse 6. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Again, this is technically and theologically true. 
God should be our confidence and our integrity should be our hope. But we need to read between the lines here. What is Eliphaz actually saying? What Eliphaz is pretty much saying is, look, Job, what's your deal? If you actually trusted God, then you wouldn't be upset. If you really believed God, then you should have hope and confidence. You shouldn't be sad or complaining or frustrated or upset. In fact, if you were really faithful to God, if you really trusted him, you wouldn't be in this position in the first place. Job, don't you trust God? Four years ago, uh, Megan and I went on a mission trip to Japan with some friends from Lighthouse. It was honestly a hilarious trip, but part, what partly made it hilarious wasn't just the company I was with, but uh, because we thought that the house we stayed at was, was haunted. Uh, weird people lived there. Um, the, the house just randomly creaked uh, in the dead of night. Uh, lights would randomly turn on and flicker, like all the, you know, all the typical, like, you know, haunted house stuff. Uh, but worst of all, there was a, um, there was a staircase that led to a mysterious attic. Uh, the attic didn't have a door, so you could stare straight into it. Uh, but no matter what time of day it was, whether it was broad daylight or not, uh, no matter how brightly lit the hallway was, the, the attic was always pitch black. Uh, and we thought a ghost lived there. And, um, the, the attic became so infamous on our trip uh, that we thought about writing a book about all the dumb things that we had, had, that we had done on the trip uh, and naming it The Attic and Other Short Stories. And uh, we were telling um, Damon, one of the missionaries uh, who was uh, driving us around Nagoya, about how we're all scared of the haunted house and the, the ghosts living inside the attic. And, and jokingly, Damon looks at me and says, dude, aren't you like a, aren't you like a pastor? You know, like, don't you, ghosts aren't real, don't you trust God? Uh, suffice it to say, it didn't help. <laughs> that illustration was a very long roundabout way of asking, does, does trusting God mean that sorrow will be gone? That fear will dissipate? That anxiety will somehow be released just because you trust God? Because that is what Eliphaz is implying. Just trust God. Stop complaining. Accept the world as it is. What's the big deal? Move on. You'll be fine. Has anyone ever told you that? And have you ever told that to others? How many of you have, how many of you have ever said to yourself, if only I could trust God more then my depression would go away? Or this would go away. Or this other thing would go away. For others of you, you experience guilt because someone told you that you obviously don't trust God because you can't stop worrying. Jesus says, don't fear. So if you fear, it obviously means that you don't trust him enough. Many of us wrongly think that if we really trust God, then we will be at peace. That we will not struggle with pain or brokenness and depression around us or with the unknown future. And in a nutshell... This is what Eliphaz thinks too. Like Eliphaz, we've been trained to think about faith in terms of what you get. So, for example, if you trust in Jesus, then you won't go to hell. Which, by the way, is a terrible and lame reason for trusting in Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, then you'll get a good life. Or if you trust in Jesus, then you'll get it into a good college. You see, when we see faith primarily in terms of what you get then faith in God becomes merely a tool, an instrument. It becomes a means to an end. And the end is not God himself, but really just something else you want instead. 
And that is distinctly American faith, not biblical faith. Biblical faith never promises that life will go well just because you trust in Jesus. Get that clear. Biblical faith never promises that you will never fear, worry, or be sad. Biblical faith simply promises that Jesus will be with you in your fears, worries, and sadness. Biblical faith does not promise absence from pain, but God's presence in the pain. Therefore, biblical faith is not opposed to pain, to grief, to fear, to sorrow, to sadness and anxiety. Sometimes, actually, that's not quite accurate. I think most of the time, I think that we treat and speak of our hearts as if it was like a cup. And so if we experience fear or worry or sadness, we, we, we tell ourselves to not, be, to not fear or uh, to be sad or to not be anxious as if our hearts are cups full of bad emotions that need to be emptied and filled with something else instead, like trust and, and faith and hope. But that's wrong, simply because sadness, fear, and anxiety aren't always sinful emotions. They can be appropriate legitimate responses to a not yet redeemed and broken world. We still live in days of sorrow. It is not yet the day when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Instead, the Cappadocian church father Basil of Caesarea analogizes that the heart is more like the internal court of the soul. In other words, the heart isn't really like a cup, but more like a scale. It weighs and counterweighs. The heart holds intention, trust, and hope in the face of stress from midterms and finals. The terrifying experience of disaster, the sorrow from loss, the frustration of unchanging circumstances, the threat of the future, so that if you do fear, or you are angry, or you are upset, it doesn't automatically mean that you don't trust God. Trusting God doesn't replace anxiety, sadness, and burden. That's what's known as stoicism. Rather, trusting God allows us to bear the weight of anxiety, sadness, and difficulty. That's Christianity. And if we take our cue from Job, from the psalmists, and even from Jesus Christ himself, then trusting God looks a lot like venting like crying out in our desperation, pouring out our troubles to Him. To keep bringing God your troubles, your cares, and your worries is the greatest act of trust, actually. Because faith is nothing other than holding on to God, even when holding on to Him doesn't make things easier or better. In doing so, we demonstrate that God is not a means to an end. He is the end. Faith in God does not remove our troubles. It often invites trouble into our lives. But what we get at the end of it is nothing other than God himself. And so the first thing we must never say is, don't you trust God? The second thing we must never say is, are you sure? Dot, dot, dot. Are you sure? Dot, dot, dot. We need to move faster or we'll be stuck here forever. No more dumb stories. But take a look at verses 7 to 11. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? 
Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. But by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. When you don't know the full picture, when you don't know everything, then you inevitably say dumb things like this. Come on, Job, don't you know? You reap what you sow. You get what you deserve. And God will repay evildoers whom the lions here represent according to what they've done. Again, this is all theologically and technically true. God will punish the wicked. And thank God he does. There's a lot of injustice in the world. Am I right? That's good news for the oppressed and the violated. In fact, the Apostle Paul applies the same principle in Galatians chapter 6. We use it in counseling. You reap what you sow and it's generally a true principle. But the problem, again, is that it doesn't apply to Job specifically. Everything that Eliphaz and the two other friends say from here on out are theologically true, but are all wrongly applied. None of what Eliphaz says to Job here says, uh, applies to Job. Why? Well, do you remember how the author of Job introduces him? At the very beginning of the, of the book, Job is introduced as someone who is innocent, blameless, upright. The author of Job is emphatically clear about that. Job's outrage at his circumstances won't make sense if we don't begin with this pr- premise. Job is innocent and righteous, and that's the problem. Eliphaz, the, t- the other two friends, and even Job himself, don't have a category for innocent suffering. That the innocent can and do suffer. Now, this doesn't mean that the innocent are morally perfect people, but that the innocent, like Job, experience suffering disproportional to their sin. Their entire worldview works off of the principle of you get what you deserve. And so if you work hard, then you will be blessed. And if you don't work hard, well, better luck next time. And what Eliphaz has done is he has reverse engineered this principle. And so, for example, if you have a bad day at school, if you fail a test, if you are taken advantage of, if you are depressed, if you feel or experience distressing circumstances, then guess what? It's your fault. It's because you looked at this person this way. It's because you dressed this way or you did something wrong. You must have done something bad to deserve this and God is punishing you for it. I think many of us are well-intentioned When we care for people who hurt, we ask questions, we ask why they're feeling this way, we ask what happened, but we need to be very careful when we ask these questions, because sometimes in our question asking, we become unintentional Eliphazes by unknowingly attributing a person's suffering to what they did or didn't do. I mean, are you sure you got the facts straight? Are you sure you didn't contribute something to the conflict? Are you sure you're, you're thinking about this the right way? I, mean, I think you're being a little dramatic and unreasonable here. I mean, maybe it's because dot, 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 fill in the blank. Something that we need to learn here is that we are never in an authoritative position to connect someone's sin to someone's suffering or to connect someone's suffering to someone's sin. 
And the reason why is because we just don't know. God knows, but we don't. Therefore, we are not in a position to claim exhaustive knowledge about a person's sin and suffering. Scripture gives us possible reasons for why someone suffers, but just because they're possible reasons doesn't mean they apply to the person who suffers. You guys see what I'm getting at here? Are you God? Am I God? Can you discern the secret sins of others just by looking at their circumstances? The minute we start making connections for people is the moment that our care has already started to go bad. And so that's the second thing we must never say. Are you sure? Dot, dot, dot. The third thing we must never say to hurting people is, and I think this is, I think it should be pretty obvious, is it could be worse. Dot, dot, dot. It could be worse. Dot, dot, dot. Take a look at verses 12 to 21. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I cannot discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. and his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up from within them? Do they not die in that without, in that without wisdom? I mean, Eliphaz's counsel just gets worse and worse. Eliphaz is now appealing to an outside divine revelation to make his point. A spirit. It's like quoting a Bible verse to someone and hoping that it'll land on them. Eliphaz is, if you're not getting what he's saying here, Eliphaz is claiming that a spirit secretly told him that human beings are as worthless as pulverized moths. I mean, that's terrible. In other words, he's saying, when people die, not even God remembers them. But is this right? It's true that no one is pure before the God who is holy, holy, holy. But is it true that human beings are as worthless as moths before God? It's not. In fact, it's wrong. And it's malicious. As much as God will punish the wicked, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God's desire is that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. And so if the spirit is wrong, then what kind of spirit is this? Well, it can't be God's spirit, because first, God loves humanity. Full stop. God never once in the scriptures equates humanity with worthlessness. God is not a cruel or spiteful God. John 3.16 tells us, reminds us, that it was on account of his love for the world that he sent his son. God didn't send Jesus into the world out of spite. Humanity is created in the image of God, bestowed with inestimable worth and deeply loved by him. God's desire for humanity is life, not death. 
through Jesus Christ. And secondly, God never speaks secretly as if he's some kid with a dirty little secret to hide. God does not play those games. On top of that, this spirit is wrong, therefore, and, and God cannot, can never be wrong. And so who is this spirit? I think it's that it's likely Satan. Satan has been completely cynical of Job, questioning his pure motives. Why does this matter? It's because Satan mixes truth with a little bit of error, just to make the truth a little bit more palatable. Satan distorts half-truths with lies. And the problem is that Eliphaz doesn't even realize that his, that his usage of truth is actually demonic. The words coming out of Eliphaz's mouth, mouth aren't words from God, but really words from the devil. Eliphaz thinks he's speaking on behalf of God, but in reality, he's actually and unwittingly speaking on behalf of the evil one. And the warning is that we can unwittingly speak on behalf of the devil as well. How? Well, the late um, theologian J.I. Packer once said that a half-truth pretending to as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. A half-truth pretending as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. When people suffer, it's technically true that they deserve worse. Yes, sure. It's technically true that it could be worse. It's technically true that we deserve hell. It's true that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. It's true that every sinner deserves the just wrath and punishment of God. It's true that the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. And that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. That's all absolutely true. But there's something cruel and demonic about saying that to a person who suffers. People who suffer are not the choir of the damned. This is not the whole truth. Therefore, it is a complete untruth. The bad news, which is true news, is not the whole news. I mean, where's the news that Jesus is with us? Where's the news that Jesus came for us? That he stepped into it with us. You see, truth, as we all know, particularly in this past year and a half, can be weaponized. Truth aimed as a weapon at the aggrieved, the violated, the suffering, isn't Jesus-like, but devil-like. It may be truth, but when it is used, manipulated, and brandished as a weapon, it turns into something demonic. And so to borrow J.I. Uh, Packer's maxim once again, and to extend it even further, a half-kindness pretending to be the whole kindness becomes a complete unkindness. There is no at least to a person suffering. There is no, well, it could be worse. Breaking a leg sucks. Full stop. There's no at least, da-da-da-da-da. Getting rejected from a school sucks. Unwanted sins suck. Depressions suck. Betrayal sucks. Singleness sucks. Suffering sucks. Sin sucks. Full stop. There is no at least or it could be worse. Or, it's not that bad, because God never compares our sufferings to others. Therefore, you should never compare the sufferings of others to others. God never says, it's not that bad, or you deserve worse anyway. God is never dismissive of our hardships. And as people who have experienced the comfort of God, may we never be dismissive of the hardships of those around us. That is what care looks like in the cross. And so that's the third thing. We must never say, at least, dot, dot, dot. And brings us to the fourth point. 
The fourth thing we must never say is everything happens for a reason. We must never say that everything happens for a reason. Take a look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest and he takes it even out of thorns and the thirsty pan after his wealth. I mean, it's almost like Eliphaz is like trying actively to be insensitive. Eliphaz is summing up all that has fallen upon Job. And he's saying that everything that has happened to Job, the loss of his status, the loss of his family, his affliction, his trouble, his pain, his suffering, are all for a divine reason. How? Take a look at verses 6 to 7. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. In other words, it's because affliction, trouble, pain, and suffering don't appear out of thin air. I mean, trouble isn't like a rare occurrence, nor a blip on our human timeline. There's a mundane regularity to our trouble. We're born for trouble. It comes naturally to us, like eating, drinking, and sleeping. Suffering, in in the words of Eliphaz, is the predictable consequence of human sin. I mean, honestly, Eliphaz really just sounds like someone who just completed their first year of seminary and seems qualified to talk just because they took two, two semesters of systematic theology. Don't worry, Leighton and Keith are in their second year now, so they're fine. But in other words, Eliphaz is telling Job that everything happens for a, a reason. And so what is it, Eliphaz? What is the reason that Job suffers, my friend? I mean, do any of you know? I mean, it can't be because Job is unrighteous. I mean, we've already talked about this in our second point. Even if none of us are, are, are Job-like, or none, even, if, even if none of our friends are Job-like, do any of you know why your friends suffer? Even if none of us are Job-like in righteousness, do you know why you suffer? I mean, no pun intended, but why are we, why are we so fascinated with the question, why? Causation, reasons, Why? I think it's because we don't sit well with the answer, I don't know. We can't do anything with I don't know. If we at least know the cause for something, we can try to fix it. If we know the reason why the faucet is leaking, we can repair it. If the reason why we struggle with this sin is because of this idol, then we can supposedly replace it. If the reason why we got a bad grade is because we didn't understand the concept, then we can at least try to understand it. But we can't try to... But we can't try, we can't fix, we can't web MD, we can't do anything with, I don't know. And while there are a lot of things in our lives that can be fixed and cured, there are also a lot of things over the course of our lives that are incurable and unfixable. Like disability, divorce, debt, disease, death. I don't know why I chose all these D words. Just bear with me. There may be partial helps and partial redemptions along the way, but there's no fix to any of those things. And that makes us feel helpless. And so not only do we have no control over our crappy circumstances, but we also don't have control over the reasons for our crappy circumstances. 
But what if we just don't know? Is it so bad to say, I don't know? Because I, I, I mean, I know we don't like uncertainty. I know we, we desperately want to know. It's, it's the reason why we want to know these idols that we struggle with, supposedly. I know we don't like mystery. I know we don't sit well with not knowing. But what Job chapter chapters 4 and 5, in fact, the entire book of Job is telling us is we just don't know. We just don't know. I mean, we know that God knows and that nothing is ever random, but beyond that, from a purely human perspective, we just don't know. Do our sufferings exist to teach us something about God? Or, or so that our story of suffering can be a blessing to others? Maybe. I mean, maybe not also. But we just don't know. I know it's scary to admit and scary to confess our inability to control our world. But part of trusting God is to simply admit that we just don't know. To lay down our insistence, to be so certain about things that we know nothing about. I don't know why God put Job through the ringer. In fact, I don't even know why it was Job. Why couldn't it have been Eliphaz the know-it-all instead? As your pastor, I I don't know why God puts specific trials in your lives and allows you to to experience the things that you do. I hear some of the things that you guys experience. My my heart is broken for you guys. I don't know why. I don't know why all of us went through the pandemic. I don't don't know why so many of, of you have suffered during it. Why some of you still suffer and struggle even now. I don't know why God allowed me to grow with no father for almost half my lifetime. I mean, was it, was it so that I, I could have father figures in the church? Was it so that I could know God, the father's love for me? I mean, maybe, but couldn't all those things still happen while my dad was still alive? You see the tricky problem with speculation? We just don't know. I don't know why Job suffered. I don't know why you suffer. I don't know why I suffered. But here's what I do know. God loves Job. God loves you. And he loves me. Full stop. And so whatever else we say about suffering, here and now, this is what we need to know. God knows. And God loves you. I mean, that's a simple answer. And it's probably an answer that you've heard all your life. But honestly, someone who, as someone who has, uh, I mean, I'm not that old, also, but as someone who has progressed a little bit further than you guys, that has become deeper and deeper for me. Suffering and the love of God can coexist because suffering in Jesus Christ coexisted. The death of God's Son is the proof of God's love. And maybe that isn't enough for you. I mean, way smarter questions have tried to answer the question why, but guess what they've also concluded? They don't know either. But the answer invariably always returns back to Jesus and God's love. Always. Every philosopher, theologian that I've read, it always returns back to Jesus and God's love. One day, God will abolish human evil and suffering. But until then, we wait by faith in the love of God through Jesus Christ. We wait in the tension of mystery. Fifth, the fifth thing we must never say is, if I were you, I would dot, dot, dot. If I were you, I would dot, dot, dot. We're almost done, guys. Take a look at verses 8 to to 16. 
As for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Seriously, that's, that's how we're supposed to respond to this. Blah, blah, blah. Again, not technically or theologically wrong. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes verses 12 and 13 in 1 Corinthians. The problem again is that it's misapplied. It's misapplied. Eliphaz recommends that Job should seek God as if Job hasn't been seeking God already. Now remember, it's on account of Job's piety and trust in God that he is suffering, not in spite of it. And then Eliphaz gives a little sermon on why God ought to be sought and committed to in verses 9 to 16. Honestly, it's way too wordy, just like the sermon. And that's the point. The funny thing is that Eliphaz gives his recommendation on what he on what he would do. But the problem is that Job didn't even ask. Like Eliphaz, bro, no one asked you. Is a little mini sermon on the greatness and providence of God going to be particularly helpful for someone who didn't ask for it, who is hurting? The rule of thumb here is when you have nothing good to say, just don't say anything. Seriously. When in doubt, just don't. Another rule of thumb is if the sufferer doesn't ask for your opinion, let alone your lofty thoughts about God, don't give your unsolicited opinion. Take your cue from the sufferer, not from what you perceive to be helpful. The honest truth is that no one, not even the wisest of pastors, know what to say. I mean, you think a pastor knows what to say when they have to bury a three-year-old child? I can't speak for all. But most people who suffer don't want your, your neat, tidy, theological, gospel-centered, counseling solutions. They just, they just simply want your presence. I mean, pain and tragedy are already awkward enough as it is. And so let this be the policy of everyone who seeks to care for their suffering friends. Show up and just shut up. And that brings us to our final and last thing we must never say to someone suffering. What do you think God is teaching you? I mean, this, this one is my favorite. What do you think God is teaching you? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, verses 17 to 27. Honestly, I, I mean, you guys know the drill. Uh, we'll just read verses 17 to 18, okay? Blessed, I mean, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, he, but he binds up, da 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 okay? Actually, we, we kind of need to read it just for some context, just to see how bad it is, okay? So let's just, sorry, sorry, my bad. Um, he shatters, but his wounds, his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death, oh wow. And in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and family, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know that also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and we know it and know it for your good. 
Okay, two chapters. Amazing. Can you believe it? Um, I must say that out of all the things that, um, that we shouldn't say, like I mentioned already, this one's my favorite. This one's a real keeper. Uh, by now, at the end of chapter five, we shouldn't be surprised at all by Eliphaz's words. And yet it still does. <laughs> Look, can you see that God only disciplines those whom he loves? Don't, don't reject God's instruction. Can you see that suffering is meant to bring you closer to God? Look at all the things that God does when you accept his discipline. And so Eliphaz mixes in some prosperity theology here. Like if you accept God's discipline, don't you know that you'll be blessed? If you repent, don't you know you'll have a nice home? All your troubles will be gone. Get all that you've ever wanted, that girl or that boy. Have a ton of kids. Live a long life. I mean, it's amazing that this wasn't written like yesterday. All Eliphaz needs is a southern accent. Then he'll really sound like an American Christian. (laughs) but really what is Eliphaz saying I mean he's calling suffering a school something to be learned I mean maybe we'll understand what he's saying a bit better if we set his statement in the the form of questions what is your suffering teaching you or let's make it a bit more pious what is God teaching you in your suffering don't despise the instruction of pain don't waste your suffering how have you become a more faithful Christian because of this what are you learning through your pain Ever heard of that before? Ever said that to someone else? Of course, not that there's nothing to learn in our suffering. Of course there is. But it's the wrong question to ask. The question assumes too much. It assumes that suffering is reduced to some form of divine lesson. I guarantee you, nine out of the ten people who say that they have grown and learned from their suffering will also say that they much rather trade what they learned for not experiencing it in the first place. Uh, that one person who would disagree is probably Johnny Erickson Tata, Tata who is probably the godliest of us all. But have you heard that before? I mean, I know the suffering was horrible, but you must have grown and learned so much from it. If I can be honest with you, once again, from my own personal experience, I'd still much rather have my dad around today than to learn all the insight that I've learned in his absence after all those years. Does Megan need to die or for something to worse, something worse to happen so that I can learn more of God's character? I mean, there's something so American about what have you learned? It's so pragmatic and utilitarian. What have you learned implies that everything that you experience must be for something else. So for example, you can't just have pain. It has to be useful pain. I mean, so many well-meaning people have asked me what I learned on my sabbatical and what God taught me. And you know what I said? Honestly, nothing. (laughs) I had fun. I got to play with my nieces. I swam laps with Megan at the community center. And I got to ride in the back of a golf cart. Sorry, I I didn't learn anything. I mean, it's like something is, it's like something is finally productive as long as it was useful, profitable, or educational. And in our circles, pain is only legitimized when you've learned something about it and shared it in front of the whole church at like a Christmas Eve service or a church anniversary service. As many of you know, there's, there's so much pressure to perform in the Christian life, especially in this church already. But now we're putting pressure on processing pain and and suffering. I mean, maybe it actually just demonstrates that we've never actually really suffered really hard. Because to suffer is already hard enough as it is. But to be asked to suffer well makes the suffering almost unbearable. 
the reality of pain is that it's painful and messy. What even is well? Why should we expect pain to be neat, tidy, and, and well, perfect, acceptable? Suffering and pain are wisely and sovereignly from God, but why can't pain sometimes just be pain? Why does it have to be unwasted pain? God places us in seasons, but why can't seasons just be seasons? Why do they have to be stewarded seasons? Not all of life is a lesson to be learned. Not everything has to be, not everything has to have, sorry, not everything has to happen for a reason. It's no surprise that we have this constant need and urge to explain what God is doing, what God is teaching, as if God needed people to hype him up. It's God that we're talking about here. As if God needed people to explain what he's up to in, in someone's suffering. It's like people trying to predict the return of Jesus. If God wanted people to know when, he, when Jesus would return, don't you think you'd be more clear about that? If God wanted people to know why they suffer, don't you think they, he would have been more apparent? Again, this isn't to say that pain is up to chance or that it's random. This isn't to say that pain and suffering can't be endured well, nor that it can't be redeemed by God. Of course it can. Of course we can suffer well and in our pain be redeemed, but let's not immediately assume there's always a lesson to be learned in our suffering and pain. We just, we just stubbed a toe, okay? <laughs> because at the end of the day, we don't know. We have no idea what God is up to in the world. We just know the big picture that someday through Jesus, God will finally save and redeem the world. He will dry every tear and make all things well again. And the redemption of the world and God's story about us is, is true and beautiful. It is an anchor that is dropped in the future. There are partial redemptions now, of course, but that ultimate redemption is ultimately future-oriented in God's time. That's the big picture. That's all that we know. But in the meantime, in, in today's pain and sorrow, we have no idea why. God knows, but we don't. And that's okay. In his attempt to explain God, Eliphaz missed the hurting person right in front of him. He had no category for someone who could simultaneously be innocent and also suffer. Because there is a category for the truly innocent and the hurting. Back in chapter 4, verse 7, Eliphaz asked the rhetorical question. He says, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? The Bible answers this question with a big fat cross and a man named Jesus who was simultaneously God hanging from it. Jesus, as the only true, truly innocent person who ever lived, suffered in the most gruesome way devised by the human beings that he created, and he unjustly perished for us. That is the greatest injustice, that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, should suffer for us. Because as much as there is pain, I mean, we all know firsthand that there's also sin too. As much as we face suffering, we also face our own sin. That when we experience wrong, we also tend to go wrong ourselves. We lash out at others. We stubbornly reject help. We self-justify. We make excuses. We return evil for evil. We gossip back and spread the same inflammatory rumors spoken against us. We harbor corrosive bitterness and resentment toward God and others. 
And yet for all of this, Jesus still comes. The moral logic of the universe isn't you get what you deserve, but that you get what you don't deserve. Jesus Christ. The heartbeat of God ultimately isn't judgment, but grace. If there were a single reason for suffering that exists in the world, that reason would be the pivotal moment in history when God descended to become man, to be crucified and to be raised for the suffering sinner. God rectifies the problem of human pain and suffering in Jesus Christ as the righteous dies for the unrighteous. If we are to care for those who hurt, we must hold the hand of the sufferer, promise that we will be with them, and start with Jesus, the truly innocent one who truly suffered unjustly. That is true comfort from Scripture, not a hallmark greeting card. That was really long. Let me pray for us, and you guys will be dismissed. God, I pray that you would raise among the individuals in this room here careful, wise, loving, sensitive comforters. I pray that our high school group, these individuals here, would be so marked by a persistent and patient and caring love for others that others would see such love and be directed back to you, the God of love. And Father, I know that that must only happen and can only happen when we ourselves have experienced your love for us. And so I pray for anyone here who has maybe perhaps never experienced your love. We know that you love them. And for those who have heard this old story time and time again, we thank you that you still love us that you love us still, and that you will love us even at the end. Father, thank you. We love you. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.